I invite you to now take a Bible and to open it to the book of Romans in chapter 5. And while you're turning to Romans chapter 5, I'd also like to welcome you here this morning and to say thank you. Last week we had a, a fundraiser for the missionaries that we support. We support them out of our annual budget, but then we have a, a fundraiser every year that seeks to raise money above and beyond that. And last week, um, due to your generosity, we were able to raise $26,000 for global missions. And so thank you very much to all of you who gave, but also to all of you who helped and served and organized uh, all of the activities of last weekend. We are very thankful for that. Now, with the, the start of this week, we also have many small groups that are beginning back, small groups and Bible studies starting up this week. And if you'd like to plug into a group that also meets uh, during the week, um, please uh, just see me afterwards um, or give us an email address and we'll be able to send you information about different opportunities that now in the fall will take place in the evening, in the morning, multi-generational groups, um, uh, Bible studies that meet uh, here at church or in homes, one even in a restaurant. Uh, we'll gladly share more information with you if, you if that's something that you're considering for this fall. But hopefully you've had a chance already to now get to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> it's on page 942. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, we'll read chapter 5 in its entirety. But just to reorient ourselves in this letter, Paul is writing this, though he desires in person to go to Rome and to meet with the believers there. But he's taken up a collection for those who are suffering in Jerusalem. And he was able to raise a good amount of money for those who are in need in Jerusalem. And so he's at the point in his journey where instead of being able to continue on to Rome, he needs to go distribute that aid to the people who are in need. So we could almost imagine if Paul was uh, today, he's saying, hey, I, I wanted to be here at Lakeside this morning, but I am on my way to Florida or on my way to Houston. I've collected funds for those who are in need. And so this is a letter that's coming to Rome because Paul can't physically be there. It's a congregation up until this point. Uh, we're not aware that Paul has been to. So he has heard about this church and he is writing to them, not knowing too many of them directly. So what we get is one of the most systematic explanations of the good news of the gospel that is for everyone. But Rome, in this day, is the capital city of the empire that Paul is addressing. And because he knows he's not going to be there to kind of answer questions directly, he sort of anticipates the questions as they come up, and he raises them himself, and then he begins to answer them. Uh, so it reminded me, it was just a few weeks ago, where my oldest Levi looked at me and said, Dad, I want to tell you a question. I go, oh, you tell me a question and I'll ask you a statement. Yeah, tell me your question. What is it? Well, Paul does that all throughout Romans. He tells us questions and then he addresses them as he unpacks the truth of the good news. And within this letter, uh, chapter 5 is, is one of the mountaintops of the good news where we just see a panoramic view of the goodness of the gospel. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that'll conclude our reading. And we've taken that phrase just right there at the end as the basis of our title today, Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> Everything that Paul describes as good things that we receive comes when we understand each of these ways in which he refers to Jesus. Only one of them is his given name, Jesus. And so adding to it Christ and Lord is saying something about him. It's not his middle name or his last name. It is a statement of faith about who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus has accomplished and what relevance Jesus continues to have in our lives. And so when we understand what he means, when some of us maybe have just grown up hearing Jesus Christ or our Lord Jesus Christ, and so we only think of it in one dimension. Oh, okay, that's who he's talking about. And we don't understand all that's contained within the statement itself about how amazing and wonderful Jesus is. And so part of my hope this morning is that for those of us who are familiar we would become unfamiliarized and amazed again uh, at who Jesus is. And if you're someone who has never heard of him uh, or doesn't know much about him, that this would be for you a chance to discover that there is so much more than meets the eye of this person named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. 
Well, first of all, as he describes him and he tells us he is Jesus, at the end of the chapter, we're going to kind of work our way backwards through chapter 5, he refers back to the first man who ever lived, Adam. And as he describes Jesus, one of the ways that he pictures him for us is to refer to him as, our, as the second Adam. There was someone who came who was created by God, who was then given a test, was told by God to do something and not do something, who failed that test, who did what God told him not to do. And because of that, there was a resulting punishment, not only for him, but for everyone. And so he says, because of the sin of the first person, Adam, all of us experience life in a world that is broken and fallen. And death is a universal reality that all of us have to think about and all of us are surrounded by. Which to us as uh, modern people, we don't quite like to hear that someone else can do something that affects us even before we were born. Uh, We like to believe that we just control our destiny and we can do and be whatever we would choose or desire to be. Uh, But that's not how they would have thought in the first century Um, And it's not how most of the people in the world think. They recognize that for us to even be here, someone had to be here before us. And there's, there's no way in which we're completely separate from or could be divorced from the choices and the decisions of the past. And so Paul is saying, all of us, whatever our nationality, whatever our background, we live in this world where the description's pretty powerful, where death reigns where there is rulers and powers and principalities in our world that seem to have control and they're not good. And we're all surrounded by them. We can't escape them. And so we experience tragedies and hardship, death and disease, and all of us experience that, whatever situation we've been born into. This is something that is common to us as human beings. You might have had great parents, you might not have known who your parents were, but all of us live in this world that is broken, in which death reigns. And so that's Paul's description. What's sad is that we then sometimes take individual manifestations of that brokenness, and then we often use it for our own agenda at times. And so even in this past week, in the news of tragedies that are happening, Um, throughout our country just in the form of natural causes of hurricanes you can find someone from almost every stripe of the political spectrum and even religious spectrum who can use it to then say what they want to say in terms of it confirming their idea and so they'll crack jokes of you know well isn't it ironic that this is happening to a bunch of climate change deniers or isn't this ironic that this is happening to a place where they believe in God and uh, where is he now? I mean, people can, from all stripes, use what is otherwise something common to all of us and basically confirm what they already believe and think and say, well, see, isn't, doesn't this just prove me right? And the reality is no. Not only do we all experience death, we are all completely puzzled and dumbfounded by it you know someone in your life who is gone and you know that they were a more gracious and generous person than you were and it doesn't make any sense in your mind that they're not still here to be gracious and generous and loving you know someone in your life who's caused a profound level of harm and has just completely given in 
to bitterness and externalizes that on other people and they're still here. And we experience the universality of this reign, but we're all also puzzled by it. And Paul is saying there's good news in that someone else has come who switches this for us. But what we experience in other parts of the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, it refers to it as a curse. We are under the curse of sin and death. That yes, we can do individual things that might make our lives uh, better or not, but even the best of us still experiences a profound level of tragedy and darkness. And so that sense that any person in the ancient world would have believed, and most of us still do if we're pressed, recognize that other things have happened that affect us, that we have to figure out and live with it. Most of us now only think of it in a humorous way when something happens like a sports event, you know, and you're watching, maybe you were watching a game last night and somewhere around halftime, somebody said, oh, I know we're going to win this game. And then your team didn't win the game. And someone's like, why did you say that? You saying that, you know, you made them lose because you jinxed it. What do you mean you jinxed it? You think I said something a couple thousand miles away that affected the outcome of something? We all kind of have this sense. Two weeks ago, I was leaving the house, just running an errand. I drove away, and the boys like to look out the window and wave, and we wave as I go. And so my oldest, again, saw me drive away, and he just said, he's never coming back. (laughs) You can believe that freaked out my wife, right? Like, because that's a, (laughs) what does he know? What do you mean he's never coming back? But there's this sense that you can't just say things like that, and that's okay. Thankfully, I made it back home, and I'm back here today. But we all do have this sense that will be true at some point in time. It'll be true of you. It'll be true of me. Where we won't come back. And that is the universality of the reign of death in our world. And so the good news that Paul presents is that there was someone else who came and he represents us but in so much of a better way where our identity in Adam leads to all of that Christ has come as a second Adam and he had before him temptations and tests but rather than giving in to the temptation and all of us getting in trouble he passed the test And so those of us in him by faith who become part of his family can receive the blessing of what it's like to be connected to him. And he has passed the test. And when you study your Bible and you compare what Jesus endured in the temptation in the wilderness to what is described for us in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, it's not just they were both tested, but their test was completely different. (laughs) Adam is described as being in a garden, being allowed to partake in anything he wanted, and there was only one thing that he wasn't allowed to have. And Jesus was in the wilderness, hadn't eaten for weeks, and he was offered everything by Satan. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll just partake. And so Adam, when he chose to disobey, he did it pretty much on a full stomach and still chose to do something stupid. And Christ, actually hungry, starving, his choice to obey was a choice to continue to suffer. 
to continue to experience hunger. Why don't you just make these stones into bread? Is the t one of the temptations that came to him, and he said no. Because he knew that it was not simply a decision he was making on his own behalf, but what Christ did as our second Adam, as a new representative for all of humanity, was that your destiny and mine was on the line when Christ was tempted. If he gave in to temptation, he could no longer be the Messiah. He could no longer be the Redeemer. And so it wasn't even just in that one moment. It was throughout the course of his life that at any point, if he deviated from the Father's will, then he could not be the representative that we all need so that the reign of death can be destroyed and the reign of life be brought about. And so the good news as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is we see again and again when temptations and tests come to the second Adam, Jesus, he passes the test again and again to show to us who he is, but also to then give us hope that the curse that we're under can be lifted so that we can now experience life in him. And sure enough, that's then how Paul describes him here within this own chapter, Jesus is our second Adam who's passed the test, is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, who's become our redeemer. And so what's amazing is not just that in a, in a moment of hunger in the wilderness, Jesus could choose to be obedient for your sake and mine. But at the end of his life, the choice that was presented to him was he could run from Jerusalem or he could go to Jerusalem. He could run from the cross or he could go to the cross. And he chose to become the redeemer for us all. And Paul wants to remind us that Christ did this, became our redeemer, even before we were smart enough and knew enough to ask him to do it. Look at verse 6 and following. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, when we wouldn't even have known to pray alongside of him, as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He did it for us. He did it in spite of us. But then, yes, in a very real sense, he did it because of us. He did it because he loved us. But he loved us enough even while we were on the wrong side, while we were still within the reign of the curse of death. He did it so that we could be brought out and rescued from that. And so when we refer to him as Jesus the Christ, he is the person who was the Messiah. Finally, the one who came, who became a sacrifice for your sins and mine, not just to avoid the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, but to not run from the pain of the cross. And then because of that, we now refer to him as our Lord, which is our reigning king, it wasn't uncommon for any of these recipients in Rome to hear someone referred to as Lord. That wasn't, that wasn't even a religious term for most of them. Caesar, who reigned from Rome, was Lord. 
He was in charge of the whole empire. So that they knew there were lords. They even knew that there were people, ordinary men who could become lords. But again, in their picture, it was, well, you get to that by just becoming the most powerful person in the empire. And so maybe we can refer to Caesar as Lord because he controls all of it. But until the time of Christ, no one as a man became a Lord by going through the valley of the shadow of death. They got there by maybe killing a lot of people, conquering foreign armies. They got there by controlling a lot of people, enforcing them into slavery. But no one made it from the one to the end by sacrifice, by dying on a cross, by giving up something in order to get there. But because he has gotten there, because he is Jesus who was the Christ, he is now the reigning Lord, and then that's where the chapter begins. So peace has been established. This is a political term. This isn't just you feel good about yourself inside now, you're having a good day and you feel at peace. You can do that by maybe just having pancakes for breakfast or something. This is, no, no, no. This ruling power has been defeated and you now experience life with a new ruling power and you live in a time of peace. And peace is not just where no one's fighting anymore. Peace is where everyone in the kingdom gets to live life to the full within it. That's what Jesus said. He said, it's the enemy who comes to seek, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So this peace that he's brought in as the new king with a new kingdom is one in which not just we agree to disagree and we don't fight with each other, but that every single member of the kingdom gets to experience life to the full. And so little kids get to play and... uh, other older kids get to be in school and older people get to see their grandkids grow up. This sense of everyone mattering within the kingdom and everyone getting to do what they're able to do to the best of their abilities. So rather than death reigning over everything, there is possibility and potential. There is life in everything within his kingdom. And that's what he offers. And what's so amazing is as as Paul is describing this new king who brings about this kingdom, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have not been composed and finalized yet. Paul wasn't one of the people sitting around hearing most of Jesus' actual teaching. He wasn't there when Jesus was baptized by John. He wasn't there when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't there in the synagogue when Christ opened to Isaiah and said, this is now the year of Jubilee. And so for those, uh, some who will attack Christianity and say, well, you know, the, the, the truths about Christianity or the doctrinal statements, those all developed over hundreds of years and eventually churches got together and had councils. No, no, no. This is within a very, very short period of time before any of them are formalized. And this is as thick of a theological statement as you get. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The man from Nazareth the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the Lord of all. How do you put that all together? I don't know. It's not as much for you and I to put together as much as for you and I to stand in awe and wonder and worship him. But a new flag has been planted on earth where there was the reign of death. 
to now through his resurrection to say, no, 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 that's not the end of the story anymore. There is life after death. There is hope beyond the grave. And the good news is better than the bad news is bad. That's what the king and the kingdom has brought about through Christ. So there again, uh, that's how we often experience it. Um, to, for us to not make the mistake that everything is instantly better because the new king is reigning. But this sense that a new king has arrived and placed his own identity in his own flag in the heart of the empire. So as this letter would have been written out loud to a gathering of, we don't imagine more than 20 to 40 people probably in a house church in Rome, eventually maybe larger, but for them to hear that we have someone who we now call Jesus Christ our Lord, Caesar is not our Lord, it was a religious and political statement being made in the heart of an empire that thought it ruled the world. Saying this Jesus, where we refer to him elsewhere, is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. And his reign has begun. That happened last night. I don't know if you stayed up long enough to see it, but after Oklahoma beat Ohio State, someone went running around with a flag and then planted it in the middle of the O. <laughs> Except that it's an artificial turf, so it didn't plant very well. <laughs> so that was a mistake. But you get the gesture. What kind of guts does it take to grab your flag in the middle of enemy territory and say, we're claiming this is ours? I mean, that's going to live in folklore now for every other time we play. That's going to be motivation to play harder. And in this new flag being planted in Rome throughout the world, there's no sense that everything gets better right away. But it's an announcement that we're here to stay and we're here to fight. And Paul even knows it as he describes this peace that's come about. It's not a peace that means we won't suffer, we won't go through anything. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So there's nothing in this that's sort of the health and wealth gospel of Jesus instantly in this reign makes everything better. But it is faith that as the Christ who is the Messiah and now the reigning Lord, he is in charge of this world. And there is no suffering that you might ex experience or I might experience that he doesn't then ultimately have the final say in. And he has now set it up that everything we can imagine going through will only in the end be overcome by him. And we can move out still living in this world where not everyone recognizes our flag and not everyone acknowledges our king. And we have what we need to go out into it and to say, but I know I follow someone who has already determined and proven beyond a shadow of the doubt by his own death and resurrection that we will win. And so I won't give up. I won't give in to despair. I will live from a posture of hope. Live a posture of hope in a world where death reigns? Yes. That's what he's called us to. That's what he's proven to us by demonstrating himself to be the Christ, our Lord.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that your kingdom has brought to us. The good news that what we were under in the curse of sin that we experience internally and externally that you did not abandon us, abandon your creation, but that through your son you entered into it. That you chose to experience life under this reign to even experience the curse of death itself. And we thank you for rising again and giving us the confident assurance that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And that in spite of everything around us, we can live from a posture of hope. And that we can continue to plant the flag of your kingdom wherever you've called us to. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. To trust you completely that every challenge that comes into our life only produces character and endurance that gives us hope. We thank you for guaranteeing our salvation. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen.